0: Let's take our Bibles and turn first in the Old Testament to the book of Second Kings, chapter 5. It's found on page 394. And then after that, we'll turn to Matthew and continue our series through Matthew. But first, Second Kings, chapter 5, we're going to read the story of Naaman, the Syrian, who was healed of leprosy. This ties in not only with last week, but also this week. In our Matthew reading, Second Kings 5, beginning at verse 1, people of God, hear now the very words of God. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six 1,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored. And You shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father. It is a great word. The prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know That there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. My master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. I bow myself in the house of Rimon. The Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian." and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets, "'Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing.' And Naaman said, "'I'll be pleased to accept two talents.' And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he he took them from their hand and, and put them in the house, and he sent the men away. And they departed. He went in and stood before his master.' And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Now let us turn to Matthew chapter 8. It's found on page 1033. We'll read the first 17 verses. Our focus will be verses 5 through 13. Matthew chapter 8. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought Him many who were oppressed by demons, and He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This far, the reading of God's holy word. Congregation, when was the last time you were astonished? When you marveled at something. What was it? Now God has made such a wonderful world and God is at work within our world, within His people, that even we who know and confess His greatness we're still caught by surprise sometimes. That's not bad. That's good. As we read this morning, Jesus Himself marveled. Jesus marveled at someone's faith. As we continue our series through this first part of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew continues to present to us Evidence of Jesus' authority, His identity, is power. He is a great prophet even more. He is the Son of God. Yet in God's arrangement, by God's design and ordaining, God blesses us according to faith. That's what this section brings out. Now, it's not the entire story. Somehow this faith must be created. Next week we hope to see more how Jesus works in the absence of our working it all starts with God. It's all by grace. However, according to God's ordaining in His working, He esteems faith rather than position. Faith rather than works. I proclaim to you this morning, Jesus blesses according to faith. First, we consider verses 5 and 6, an unlikely believer. Now, often when the gospel writers record a miraculous healing Jesus performed, the focus is often on the disease or the situation of the one being healed. Just earlier the the leper, later you've got a fever, the demon possessed, healing others. Well, that's certainly in view here, but, but Matthew selected an event where he brings out especially the person, an unlikely believer, where Jews and even Jewish Christians early on would not expect one to be a believer. A centurion, a Roman, a Gentile. Verses 5 and 6, When he, that is Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, as with the healing we considered last week, that of the leper, so with this miracle, there are overtones, there are reminders, pointers of what we read from the Old Testament with Elisha's healing of Naaman the Syrian. And these reminders, these, these overtones, They point out that Jesus is a great prophet. But there are differences as well. Think back to the Old Testament reading. There there was a master, the king of Syria, who was looking out for someone under him, named one of his generals, here too. But in Matthew's account, it's the greater, it's the master, the centurion who goes. He doesn't just write a letter, but he himself goes. Seek healing for his paralyzed, his suffering servant. Writing a letter of recommendation, that's one thing. But coming personally, that's quite another. That's unexpected. Already there, we see there's, there's something different about this man, this centurion. Why did the centurion himself go? Instead of writing a letter of commendation that another servant could take to Jesus, well, from this passage, at least the particular servant who was ill was paralyzed. He couldn't go. And unlike another time, it it wouldn't work another time friends or fellow servants, friends took someone who was paralyzed and brought him to Jesus. Well, that probably wouldn't work here because he was suffering terribly. Perhaps he couldn't be moved even. The servant has some condition that not only made him unable to feel part of his body, being paralyzed, but still suffering terribly. The servant could not come. And we don't even know if the servant would come. We're not told anything about this servant. If the servant believed in Jesus, we know only that his master did. The centurion believed, and we see that in our lives too, don't we, congregation? You, you, and I—we who believe—we are to pray to God for others, believers and unbelievers. We are to pray that in one situation, perhaps that God would heal them according to God's will, not simply though of earthly illness but especially spiritual illness, their sin. Jesus blesses according to faith. And that God has given faith to you. You are to intercede. You are to pray for others. Pray for others. Parents, do you believe, do you believe that God is your God and the God of your children? Well, He said so in His Word. Pray for your children. Pray for your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, for everything they need, body and soul, for time and eternity. And may the Lord bless you according to your faith. Likewise, husbands and wives, do you believe, as God's Word says, that God has joined you to your spouse, one flesh? so you are to encourage each other. That God sanctifies, as we saw last time, an unbelieving spouse for the sake of a believing spouse. How much more can you ask blessings for a believing spouse? Your believing spouse. Pray for each other. Husbands, pray for your wives. Wives, pray for your husbands. For everything the other needs. For body and soul. Again, time and eternity. May the Lord bless you according to your faith. How far God extends His blessing. How far is that? Well, what does he say in his word? Believe his word and pray based upon his word in faith. And may the Lord bless you according to your faith. Now, we see something more in this unlikely believer, this centurion, who makes his request to Jesus. He did not ask for his wife. He did not ask for a friend of his, a child of his, even a soldier under his command, he made a request for his servant, for a slave. Now, slaves, from what we know in those days, often were not valued. They were often considered expendable. It's, this would be unusual, given what we know of that culture, for someone to request this. And so, also, this believer is unlikely because the centurion was a Gentile. That perhaps stands out most to us. He was not a Jew. Find out, verse 10, that he wasn't a Jew. With no one in Israel have I found such faith. So he was a centurion, he was a Gentile. But it was to the Jews that Christ first came. That the gospel would first come. It was through the Jewish people that the kingdom of heaven would begin to be brought to this earth. To them were given the promises, the covenants to whom Christ came in the flesh. Christ was a Jew. Now we think in the Old Testament, Ruth, Rahab, Naaman we read of. Those are exceptions, those non-Jews. By and large, believers to this point were from the Jewish people. Yet here is a centurion, a Gentile, coming to Jesus, believing Jesus can heal his servant who's suffering terribly. But now we step back and we think about it. Every one of us who comes to the Lord and cries out for help is unlikely Because of our sin. Sin is a greater burden than paralysis, terrible suffering. Paralysis and terrible suffering kept this servant from coming to Jesus for healing. But how much worse? Someone who's physically well and healthy will not cry out for forgiveness. And that's who we are by nature. We are those who are lost in sin. It might have been unlikely for a master like this centurion to care for a slave like his. Unlikely a Gentile would believe a a Jewish savior. But much more unlikely that anyone born in sin, born an enemy of God, should believe in Jesus. That Anyone believes on this earth is unlikely. Even more, it's impossible when viewed from a human perspective. But God is at work in this world. God is at work in human hearts. God has worked in your heart. He's worked in my heart. He's worked in this centurion's heart. And there's the difference. God's work. God's reaching down to change our hearts, to trust Him, to love Him, to step out in faith. We understand just how horribly and completely sin enslaves us by nature. It won't then strike us that this Greek centurion, this Gentile centurion is such an unlikely believer For if God overcomes the barrier of our sin to produce faith within our hearts, certainly He can overcome the barriers of ethnicity or class or, or any other earthly barrier. And He can work faith. So don't despair for those who seem impossible. And, oh, that person would never believe in Jesus. Pray for them. Talk to them. As God gives you opportunity, invite them to church. Maybe have them sit with you during the service. Welcome them. We don't know whom God will draw to himself, but God does. Believe in God's almighty power to change, power to change any human, power to bring any person to faith. Step out in that faith. Jesus blesses according to to faith may he bless you according as you testify to the grace of God in Christ to all you come in contact with. Now the circumstances of the centurion who comes to Jesus that they make him an unlikely believer, and so that he comes at all is a great testimony to god 's amazing grace, his grace that surprises us. but there's more to this story, this narrative, as we move to in our second point to this confession of faith, that it's an astounding confession. Verses 7 through 10, and verse 13, verse 7, following, And he, that is Jesus, said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. The centurion, Gentile centurion, humbles himself. By acknowledging his unworthiness for Jesus to come under his roof, to come to his place. He's a military man. He's respected. He's elevated. He's a centurion. He's not just a a regular soldier even. But he recognizes his humble status before Jesus. He's a Gentile. He's he's tied to the Romans, the, the ruling class. But he recognizes his humble status before the Jew, Jesus. How different from Naaman the Syrian back in their king's reading who boasted over the Jews. He boasted in the waters of his homeland. There's no boasting here. There's only humility. That in itself is astonishing. But there's even more. The centurion did not ask Jesus to come to his house originally. He didn't even ask Jesus to heal his servant, although the the desire is clearly there. While the leper earlier in this chapter, chapter 8, added the words, if you will, the centurion did not even think it necessary to do that, humbling himself before Jesus, nor did he presume to tell Jesus how to heal. Instead, he left it up to Jesus. He simply informed Jesus of the need, trusting his knowledge, his compassion, his power to resolve it. We read on, But only say the word, And my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. Here's faith. Faith that crosses over class and wealth barriers. Faith that crosses over ethnic prejudices and hatred. But even more, faith that crosses over what human eyes see. For when Jesus says he will go and heal the servant, presumably by touching the servant, the centurion says, there's no need. There's no need. Your word is sufficient. Your word is powerful enough. The centurion knows Jesus does not have to touch the man in order for him to be healed. He can simply speak. That's great faith. It appears to be greater faith than the Jewish leper had. Because the leper, back earlier we saw last time, was not content to stand afar off as he ought to have done, according to Moses' regulations, to shout, Unclean! And ask from a distance for healing. The leper went against Moses' authority, regulations, and came up to Jesus, presumably, so maybe Jesus would touch him. The Gentile, however, who is not strictly speaking under the law of Moses because he's excluded from it, rejected from it. He recognizes the privileges of the Jews. He submits to it. He submits to this authority that that he doesn't even buy into, in one sense, uncircumcised as he is. He knows that Jesus the Jew would be going against great social pressure, great convention. That Jesus the Jew would be humbling himself to enter into the house of a Gentile. But from this story, it seems reasonable to bring out, he believes even more about Jesus. That Jesus is a great prophet. Is Jesus even, would he say, the Son of God? Humbling himself to grace the presence, the house of a sinner? It seems the centurion believes this, because Jesus apparently credits him with saving faith. And in that faith, the centurion confesses he doesn't deserve to have Jesus come under his roof. If Jesus would simply say the word, the servant would be healed. The centurion's faith, it's not in the law of Moses, even though, again, he has regard for it. His faith is not in the Jewish people, even though he realizes their privileged position. His faith is in Jesus. And from this faith, out of this faith, which God has worked within his heart, he makes this confession that astonishes Jesus. and Jesus is astonished. Verse 10, When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. His confession astonishes Jesus. Jesus marveled at it. That's what we read from God's word. Jesus marveled at this confession, at the faith of this Gentile centurion. Now, now the confession, the, this faith does not take God by surprise, but Jesus in his manhood is surprised. This is one of two times in the gospel accounts where Jesus is said to marvel. The other is in Mark 6, verse 6, which, interesting enough, if you look that up, Mark 6, verse 6, we're told that Jesus marveled at the lack of faith. Of the Jews. And Jesus marveled at their lack of faith and not healing them because of their lack of faith. In Mark 6 6. Here, though, Jesus marvels at this Gentile's great faith. And according to that faith, Jesus blesses him by healing his servant simply by speaking. Verse 13 To the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The centurion's faith was not misplaced. It was not a wistful hope. It was rooted in who Jesus is. Not just a Jew, not just a great teacher, not just a miracle worker. But Lord. Lord. That's what the centurion says twice there. Verse 6. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed. Verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy. Now, now that word, it, it could be used of a human. But Jesus commending him, we wonder, does the centurion really mean this as God? Not just an earthly master, but certainly pointing to divine power, divine authority. And here is great faith. Because judging by earthly eyes, what is Jesus? Through a Roman's eyes. He's a Jew. He's a peasant. He's from Nazareth. He's merely human. And we think even from the Jewish religious leaders. They didn't even have, even close to the measure of faith, that the centurion had. A prophet. And more than a prophet. Lord The God who not only can touch and heal, but the God, the Lord, who speaks and things happen. The God who spoke and, children, what happened in the beginning, everything came to be. Great faith. The centurion believes that Jesus speaks with the power, the words of God. The power of God is in His words. Even that's different from the leper. A few verses ago, the the leper said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. But he also went up, violating Moses' restrictions, Moses' laws to be touched. Throughout the Gospel accounts, it seems people come up to Jesus to be physically touched by him. Again, we saw that's not bad to be touched. And that can convey compassion. Jesus does that. But Jesus' word is powerful. It's all-powerful. He is a great prophet. And we can connect this to us today. Jesus is not just some miracle worker, miracle healer. He is God himself who has come, bringing the kingdom of heaven, fulfilling all righteousness, offering himself as a sacrifice in our place, dying on the cross, rising from the dead. And by his suffering and death, Jesus has done what no mere human can do. He has paid for the sin of his people. He has brought righteousness. He has brought life. He has brought the kingdom. For all those who entrust themselves to Jesus, this power, this righteousness is yours. That's the gospel, the good news. How does that gospel come to us? With words. Words we read in the Word of God, the Bible. Words proclaimed by a minister of God set apart to declare that gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. Do you believe? Well, well, sure I believe. Well, like the leper, like the centurion, or more. Do you believe his words? The power of this gospel word, that simply through faith, in this message of the, the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, God forgives you. You are granted eternal life. You have God as your Father. How much better than healing from paralysis? Based on God's Word, believe that in Christ alone is righteousness, your righteousness. You don't need some special experience. Drum up some vision or some burning in the bosom or some, have I had this or not? Trust Him, His Word. God blesses according to your faith. Believer, you are forgiven. You are heir to eternal life, no matter what is going on in your life, in your experience. Like our passage of this morning, Jesus is absent from us today, absent bodily, but present in His power, His grace, His Spirit. How great is your faith? Do you require earthly sights and earthly sounds, earthly wellness? Do you expect some emotional experience or some shiver down your back? Or do you confess, Jesus is all-powerful. All I need is for him to speak. All I need is his word. That's what we need. But Christ is powerful. And he sends his spirit to accompany his word. We have the sacraments. They're means of grace, yes. But without the word, the sacraments are useless. And the word can stand alone. And we aren't to elevate the sacraments above the preaching of the Word. Sometimes people think that, say, the Lord's Supper is some extra special event that we need to treat carefully or lose its specialness, whereas they approach the preaching of the Gospel casually. Skipping it because, well, hey, it's hunting season. Or, hey, I'm on vacation. Or, losing interest, being distracted. Some persons harbor almost a superstitious thinking of the sacrament. They think there's something in there that's lacking in the preaching. They strive to be present when the Lord's Supper is celebrated, but they neglect to be present when the gospel, the word, is proclaimed. Now, we are to value the sacraments, of course. We are to consider them holy, holy baptism, holy communion, of course. We are not to elevate them above the preaching of the word of God. Like Jesus touching the sick and healing in that way, that's parallel to the sacraments. They are aids to our faith. But the Word of God he uses that to produce faith, strengthen faith, have faith in Jesus' Word, His power, His Word is sufficient, efficient, powerful because of who Jesus is. So often we look to who we are. We need to trust in who Jesus is. And if the word is able to stand alone, even concerning the sacraments that God has instituted, how much more is the word able to stand alone concerning that which God has not instituted in the worship drama, dance, emotive music, personal testimonies, gimmicks, and so forth. Congregation, have a faith like that of the centurion, faith that Jesus' spoken word is powerful. And that through this spoken gospel preaching, Jesus does something more amazing than healing paralysis and terrible physical suffering. He brings about a new creation. He brings about regeneration, imparting resurrection life to sinners dead in their sins. He brings forgiveness of sins. He blesses according to faith. Believe His word. That to all those who entrust themselves to Jesus, God, for the sake of Christ, freely and fully forgives all your sins. You are right with God, no matter what your experience tells you. That's a powerful word. It's a powerful Savior. It's an astounding confession. Even yet today, God is generous, so kind to those who believe. And so don't be unbelieving, but believe. And not only be saved, but be renewed to live for Christ. Jesus commends this man's faith. But then the story doesn't stop there. It goes on as we consider in our third point, there's a stern prophecy. A stern prophecy. Now, no doubt, Jesus' prophecy in verses 11 through 12 took many Jews by surprise. Verse 11, Jesus says, "...I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven." While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christ here prophesied many Gentiles would enter the kingdom of heaven, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. But also many Jews would not be in that kingdom, but would be cast out, cast out weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal torment. Jesus is telling us here is that what matters, it's not physical descent from the patriarchs. Being able to trace one's family line to believing parents or grandparents. When it comes down to it, what matters is personal faith. And here too, think back to the Old Testament healing of Naaman by Elisha. They're a Gentile who believed, albeit with an immature faith, was cured of his leprosy. But what happened to the Jew? Elisha's servant, Gehazi, the leprosy came upon him. Naaman believed and acted in faith. Gehazi, he was acting in greed, which shows unbelief. Naaman was healed. Gehazi became afflicted, even though he was a Jew, even though he was Elisha's servant. See what matters is not one's earthly station or position or pedigree. Do you believe? It's the question that comes. The gospel spreads throughout the world, and many who are not Jews have come to repent and believe. We here are the outworking of that. I've entered the kingdom of heaven, and that kingdom is blessedness. Outside the kingdom is is torment. There are those two realities. Two destinations, two destinies, eternal destinies. Congregation, which one is yours? Perhaps you're wondering why I would say this to covenant community. Because that's who Jesus addresses here. Sons of the kingdom. He who enters into the kingdom must possess a righteousness that meets God's perfect standard. Not even the Jews had that, even though they came from holy stock. Even now, not one of us possesses that righteousness based upon our parents or grandparents. This righteousness can only be laid upon through personal faith. Faith is not from our resources. It's not a gift of parents. It's not something that someone can manipulate. I can't give it to you. It's a gift of God. To those whom God grants that gift of faith, through that faith God credits the righteousness of Christ. Have the blessedness of heaven. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity. doesn't matter your social class. doesn't matter if you're the worst of sinners. doesn't matter who your parents are. What ultimately matters is Christ and laying hold of Him only through faith. What are you counting on? What are you pinning your hopes on? Jesus blesses according to faith. That's clear from this passage. What we've also seen to review the other applications is that we should then pray in faith for others, family members, others, and along with praying to tell others about Jesus, the one who is all-powerful. We've seen it applied to our worship services that we are to worship by faith, trusting in God's Word, not seeking some experience to test or gauge worship. Those are just some additional applications of what we find here, that Jesus blesses according to faith. By God's grace, always believe and be blessed. And may God receive all the praise. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for speaking, and Your Word is powerful. We confess at times we're tempted, Oh Lord, we want to See, we want to experience in ways that we judge, that we think are valid, but to trust your word. May we always trust your word because it's your word. And Lord, would you bless us according to your word? And when people ask, may we point out Jesus and your word and take them there. We pray, O Lord, that you would receive all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.